0: Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and the structure which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is my old friend, long-time colleague, Dr. Peter Fenwick, who is Emeritus Consultant Neuropsychiatrist at Morsley Hospital and Emeritus Senior Lecturer at the Institute of Psychiatry. His other appointments included Consultant Neurophysiologist St. Thomas's, Westminster and Broadmoor Hospitals. For 10 years, he was a trustee of the Prince of Wales Foundation for Integrated Health. He's emeritus president of the Scientific and Medical Network and former chair of the board in the Study Society. He's one of the world's foremost authorities on the dying process and is the author, with his wife Elizabeth, of many books on consciousness and death, including The Art of Dying and his autobiography, Shining Light on Transcendence. Peter, it's very nice to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, David. It's really nice to be
1: here. Uh, When I hear you read that out, I can't believe it's me. (laughs)
0: It's obviously somebody else. And I'm going to ask you initially about a shaping moment involving your choice of work. My first shaping moment,
1: and you have to take the two together, was when I was talking to my mother, who was a surgeon, and she told me about her path through life she's a surgeon in australia then she came across to england and she was the first person to take uh, an english surgical exam because women in fact weren't surgeons at that time You, you just didn't do it and then she went to dublin and then she came back again And she was telling me all about her life, and that was when I decided, yes, I want to be a doctor too. (laughs) But that isn't quite the whole thing, because as I grew up, I found that it was medicine, yes, but it was minds, brains and consciousness that I was really interested in. And so I thought, yeah, I'll be a neurosurgeon. but. And this is the shaping moment. I was working with the neurosurgeon chief at St. Thomas's, and he had got, uh, he got a patient whose brain he was finding a structure and taking out an area which had died. And I suddenly realised that being a surgeon, you spend your time looking down deep, dark holes <laughs> on the operating theatre, and that wasn't me. I want to actually talk to people about their experiences and so on. So I changed from neurosurgery to neuropsychiatry, and that suited me perfectly, minds and brains.
0: Indeed, indeed. And then I think when you were at Cambridge, you you did have a number of influential mentors and teachers, and also um, later on when you were training more specifically in psychiatry. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about them. And did they give you any valuable advice?
1: yes i I was very fortunate uh first of all in going up to cambridge and secondly i chose trinity and that was a good choice because my tutor was in fact andrew huxley lovely man very gentle very kind very supportive one of my colleagues in my seminar group asked him and said andrew tell me do people ever develop late (laughs) he looked at him and said no i'm afraid not (laughs) (laughs) so in fact uh it's the ones who are bright from beginning beginning who go on being bright so he introduced me to neurophysiology and the thing about that was that there wasn't any mention of consciousness then you couldn't actually talk about it and when i raised this in in a supervision with him he said look, we don't know what consciousness is, we don't understand it, but we do know what levels of alertness are in the brain. So stick to levels of alertness, my boy. And of course, I did do that and then finally had to change.
0: Because this, this was really the legacy of behaviorism, wasn't it? But you know, oh, 50 much. years, you were only, you couldn't talk about consciousness. And I believe you went to the library in Cambridge to see if you could find some references to consciousness and there was virtually nothing to be found
1: absolutely nothing. That was the school library. Because when I was going up, I wanted to prepare for my exam, and and wow them with my knowledge of consciousness. It didn't work. No, it was nothing.
0: Things have changed a lot. And and I'm going to go on now to ask you about some books that shaped your life and thinking. And my guests are almost never able to single out one particular book. There are usually one or two books that are influential. What, What about books in your case
1: um i have one very influential book which led on to the second influential book my first one is a book by colin wilson called the outsiders wow Um, remember here i am i was actually qualified at that time qualified david so i should have a knowledge of what the human brain is and does but there, was, there wasn't anything about that in, in in our courses. And so I still had a very limited view, reductionist view of mind. It's all made in the brain. And then I read Colin Wilson's book, and this talked about a stream of consciousness, which was outside, which great musicians, and sculptors and poets and playwrights were able to hook into. And so that was an amazing uh, revelation to me. The world was different from what I thought it to be. And then in in that book, there was some recommended reading, one of which was the Bhagavad Gita and another of which was Aldous Huxley's uh, book, uh, The Doors of Perception. The Doors of Perception. Well, that was one, Doors of Perception. Mm. That was the other one, in fact, uh, that that I then read. And uh, so I got a much wider view, but it it still didn't make sense until I came across a book by a guy called Dabro. (laughs) None of you have heard of Dabro. Deborah was a mathematician, and he wrote an excellent book. He wrote two, in fact, on quantum mechanics. And and so I spent one summer holiday reading all about quantum mechanics. And then I began to understand that if you take the world as just little flying pieces of matter, you get one picture, and that was the reductionist one. But if you take a, a quantum field of probabilities, which coalesce and condense, then you're looking at something quite different. And so that was the second book, which was enormously influential and affected my thinking.
0: Uh, And this is a relational view, isn't it? Rather than a view based on separation, everything is relational. So relationship Uh, becomes fundamental, process becomes fundamental.
1: Absolutely. And not only that, that they're all hovering there in space until something or other precipitates them and what precipitates them is in fact your interaction with the world so until you interact there is no world and then you go into those wonderful things about god in the quad and who's maintaining the tree <laughs> and the tree when you're not here signed yours faithfully god um uh but that that's the way it seems to be no world until you interact with it and then you precipitate the possibilities or one of the possibilities that are there
0: the the collapse of the wave function as it were absolutely and let's move on to a a key moment of insight in your work in, in in relation to the nature of consciousness which has really been your life's work is the exploration of consciousness and trying to understand death and bring forward a new model of death and we work together in the 80s at the International Association for Near-Death Studies.
1: Um, Yes, very exciting that was, still exciting now. Yes, that's absolutely true. I think probably the insight into um, the whole question of consciousness was uh, when I was reading uh, the Bhagavad Gita and I started to understand that um, there was a line of consciousness which you could follow, and you could in fact change your own level of consciousness. So that was important. But what was more important than that was when I got a method whereby I could look inside myself and start to examine what I was like and whether any of these things were true, and this was when i joined an organization uh called first of all in fact it was a school of economic science lovely little story there i was on a train platform with my wife and there was this big poster philosophy lessons and so i said to my wife, what about doing philosophy lessons and she said Nep, pottery <laughs> and i said um, okay well um what about philosophy this term and pottery next term? And um, we never did pottery, (laughs) which is a a real shame. I mean, I've asked her since then, if she'd like pottery classes. No, that was the moment pottery for her or philosophy for me. So we joined the um, uh, School of Economic Science. And they were, uh, amongst other things, an Ospensky group. And Ospensky talks of things in terms of octaves and energy going into the octaves to keep the octaves straight. But the changeover of the octave, you can then start something entirely new. And so they sent their students along to the study society, study society for normal psychology. And that was very influential because that's where I learned to meditate and um, where I met a, a fascinating guy called Dr. Rolls he had flipped if you like it he'd become cosmically conscious he was a very good tutor and using the meditation i could then begin to understand a little bit about this by meditating myself and then entering parts of my own consciousness which i'd never known existed and that was when at times i'd come down into Love and light as a central core function, amazing, absolutely amazing. I love that.
0: So this is this is the inside out view, you might say, rather than the in, outside in, which is yes, the outside what's in the science doesn't except. help
1: at all. Doesn't help at all. Uh, if you if that's what you want, because I am forced by my reductionist science until I would read Dabro. In fact, I was forced to forced to say it was all brain function. Look here, Peter, you're just ridiculous. This is just your brain sparking in a different way. But it's not.
0: No, well, that's, that's uh, very important. And how does your understanding and experience of consciousness influence the way you live your life?
1: Oh, quite differently. An example of, of that was, um, I was coming back from a conference. And There were one or two uh, high-profile neurophysiologists, and one of them there was saying, um, well, the brain controls everything, we have no choice. And I was saying, no free will? He said, absolutely no free will at all. So you you just sort of run along rails, brain rails, is that right? Yes, of course it is. And so I said, uh, (laughs) what happens when you tell this to your wife? You said that's got nothing to do with it so he in fact had made this split between uh physical science which he thought controlled us but yet was part of him which knew it was absolutely wrong and that was fascinating yes i
0: think it's 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 what we're calling in our new book that's coming out um, the divided life and so you have one life in the lab and with your colleagues, and then you have your life at home. And the, the two two things are complementary, but um, intention in tension, in a sense. And I think if if people were able to be more upfront and honest about the deep experiences that they have, then, it, then science would um, potentially undergo a shift.
1: You can't, or you couldn't, beginning to now. Um, i went against the norm by uh one i when i ran my maudsley unit on one occasion i thought it would be fun to have a a astrologist to come along and tell us about my patients and when they were likely to have seizures and so on and so she came along and she did this uh, but I don't think that she did it as well as i could do with my science so it was just a, a short introduction but you you can't do these sorts of things you can't actually do experiments like that you can't talk about them uh because your colleagues don't like it uh another example of that they were setting up a meditation group at the institute and um the person who was running it ran the course on meditation and then when she wanted to do a second one they said absolutely not it's not within our line thank you i mean everything was terminated just like that and i suspect that at that time people didn't talk or research meditation they do now so the situation is
0: changing and then maybe you could tell us a little bit about your encounters with Alain Forget and Mother Mira, because I know those have been important influences in your life.
1: Yes, two completely different. Uh, Mira, of course, is lovely. She doesn't speak, but she does Shaktipat, or, which is, in fact, uh, putting her hands on you and transmitting uh, spiritual energy to you. And you go up and you kneel in front of her until you get too old to kneel, and then somebody gives you a chair <laughs> and you can bend forward. And uh she just presses her fingers like that, that's all. And you feel sometimes you feel nothing, and that depends totally on your on hello, on your mind. And um <laughs> he's sure. got a cat no, sure, he wants it?
0: to join in, in the interview he's got something to say i think
1: oh he really has haven't yeah. you Castle? and uh as i was saying that uh if you feel nothing it's probably more your your mental state but sometimes she would open you up completely and the you would see a totally different aspect to yourself and the world i mean the whole world became enormously beautiful light everywhere i mean it was fantastic and this light would go on at night and you'd see it at night in yourself and uh, after having been to one of her meditation sessions which were in germany so i could walk in the woods after having it and that was just wonderful um one was different because again, you understood a little bit more about yourself and the extension of the experiences that you could have. So she was amazing. Alain Fourget, uh, he's different. I I met a guy called David Lorimer, <laughs> <laughs> who told me that um, he'd met a man who could show his light body. Well, come on. I mean, I, I couldn't wait to see this man who showed his light body and it turned out to be alan forger and he's an interesting guy in himself because his father died when he was seven and the parents divorced when he was three and his mother was always fighting to get him back so he had a very disturbed childhood and he realized after his father died that he couldn't manipulate his mother in any way he wanted And so he used to go into the bath, have a bath, coming up to school time, and then tell his mother that he was really so ill, there's no chance of him going to school. He'd spend a lot of time in his bath. Uh, He came from a uh, noble French family, so there's a lot of money. And so he actually didn't have to work and so he never went to university. But he became interested in meditation. And so he devoted his life to meditation. And what lovely places he'd got. He would drive down to Charles or to Notre Dame or to the Chapel of the Medal, uh, I think in March somewhere. And these were wonderful places. And uh, he's very good at picking up energy. And so if any of your listeners want this Saint Faith's Chapel in Westminster Abbey, it's it's got the most wonderful energy so do go and meditate in that and then one day he had his first awakening then a day later had a second awakening and um he then realized that uh his role in life was to a give another method of meditation to the world and secondly um to Uh, see if he could move the world a little bit more away from its reductionist methods into an understanding that uh, consciousness is basic. Which I
0: think is, is happening more widely now. The idea that consciousness is fundamental is much more popular than it was even five years ago, I think.
1: I think that's absolutely true, without any doubt. And what was interesting to me was that he could give light. And so if I sat in front of him, I saw light all around him. Not only that, uh, the colors of the light mean something very specific. So I could judge, in fact, uh, the sorts of bits of me that needed needed attention in order to release them and then go forward. And so I had a guinea pig. And if you've got a guinea pig and you've got a lab, two will go very well together. And so it took me about five years to persuade him to go into the lab. And then I could put my electrodes on him. I could see what happened when he uh, gave light. And everybody who I said I could see light when he gave it were pretty sceptical. I mean, my scientific colleagues. Mm. And so you can imagine that when I had my electrodes on him and he gave light for the first time, This was a crunch, crunch moment. Was his brain different? Was it the same? And the answer to that was it was different. And so he had a whole lot of gamma activity. And so therefore I I went on much further and and did a a lot of scientific study of him. But because he works with uh, students, I did an examination of him and the student together so i could see if in fact he was affecting the student's brain and indeed he did so uh he's an interesting guy
0: well, that's very important work i think in in taking forward this sort of contemplative neuroscience and the, the inner and the outer um, correspondence and peter i'm we're coming to the end of the interview and right? so i want to ask you whether there's a proverb you live by or, or a favorite quote Uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners
1: yes i'm I'm sure there is (laughs) and the fact that i'm searching desperately for a quote uh, i think is important because my quotes that i have change they can change by the day or they can change by the year so what's my quote now I suppose if I was to choose one, it'd probably be the 10th man. When you count everybody around, there's always one person short because you're always counting outside. And of course, the one person short is you. Yeah.
0: And then is there any advice that you'd give your younger self?
1: Oh, God, yes. Absolutely. I don't think I'd have survived very long if I gave this advice to my younger self and he, he, he took it. And that is always be true to yourself and of course when i was a scientist there were times that i had to not be true to myself i mean after you've met somebody like um people who have these most wonderful wide experiences once you've had that and you can't talk about it to people because they all say brain function when you know it's not but i think probably i would have said yeah be truer to yourself, but I think probably I'd never become a consultant at the Maudsley. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, I can understand that, that that advice, and I think it's 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 good advice in any event to be as true to yourself as you can be, uh, given the circumstances in which you find yourself, because your the circumstances in the Maudsley were, were were quite restricting. And and you had to keep your job at the same time as being true to yourself. Yes, that's absolutely right. Although I think some of the analysts did a bit better. Peter, thank you very much indeed for coming on the podcast and sharing your important life experiences with us. Uh, and uh, I'm sure people will very much look forward to listening to what you have to say.
1: David, thanks very much indeed. We've known each other for a long time. And so it's been a great pleasure doing this interview with you. And I hope that some of your listeners find it useful.
0: I'm sure they will. Thank you so much, Peter.